0: Hello everybody and uh, Happy New Year. Welcome to our quarterly podcast. I'm Helen Watson, the CEO of the UK Wealth Management Business, and I'm joined today as usual by our Global Investment Strategist, Kevin Gardner, and uh, one of the co-heads of Portfolio Management, uh, Hugo K. Procure. As usual, we sit down at the end of the quarter to discuss the last three months of sort of macro, market and portfolio activity. And as 2021 now, thankfully, (laughs) recedes into the uh, into the distance, uh, we'll provide some longer term context as well and uh, ponder a little bit of what might be in store for us in 2022. So, Kevin, um, the markets perked up a bit in the last three months of 2021 and it, it sort of seems a bit odd, I guess, given that we had the arrival of the Omicron strain and a spike in infections. So what was going on? Why, why do you think we saw
1: that? Well, it, it does seem a bit odd, but um, governments were pretty restrained in the face of the uh, in infections, I'm guessing because it's more of a familiar risk now, and perhaps because vaccination has made the virus a little bit less potent. So they refrained from really locking down economies in the way that they could have done. And in the meantime, there was a lot of other stuff going on as well, which meant that overall, the fourth quarter really was a pretty strong quarter for global stock markets. They more than regained the ground that they lost uh, earlier in the in the autumn. And the year as a whole was really a pretty pretty strong one. Global stocks, I think, were up something like 19% in US dollar terms for the year as a whole. And again, it was the US market really leading the way, which saw a remarkably steady ascent as well during the course of 2021. Overall, I think we saw 70, 70 new closing highs for the S&P 500. It is, and and the biggest drawdown we saw was only five percent. So actually, it was a relatively stable ascent, if uh, if such a thing makes sense. Uh, Sector-wise, too, things became a little bit more evenly balanced last year. For most of the Upturn to date. It's been technology very much leading the way. But last year, we actually saw a couple of other sectors doing pretty well alongside that, uh, most notably the banks and the energy sectors, I guess. There were exceptions. Not everything managed to shrug off the Omicron threat and uh, earlier worries too. Uh, China lagged behind quite noticeably. In addition to the, uh, they did introduce clampdowns towards year end. And in addition to uh, the virus, the other thing causing China problems market-wise was uh, ongoing regulatory um, interference by the authorities, not interference; it's, it's their job I guess to do that and they certainly were doing it and to a greater extent perhaps even than usual. The Chinese market as a result fell by about, uh, about a fifth but if you're looking for the most pronounced laggard, I'm afraid that prize goes to Turkey which uh, managed to fall by roughly a quarter to, uh, to a third. In round number terms, partly because they insisted on pursuing a very idiosyncratic monetary policy. And we're going to come on to monetary policy again in a yeah. second, but a final thought about 2021 for me is that um, it's uh, it might be worth sort of sitting back and uh, taking stock as it were, apologies, um, because we're now moving, we're almost at the second anniversary of the uh, the onset of the pandemic itself. And since the pandemic began, movement in markets not just last year but the entire episode has really been quite quite striking. The global stock market is up roughly 30% above its pre-pandemic high. Uh, The global economy is bigger than it was, corporate profits are comfortably higher than they were and of course interest rates and bond yields are significantly lower and that has helped and the extent to which it's helped may be something that uh, will be revealed in 2022 because one of the things I think we're going to be talking more about in a short while is the possibility of a reversal in interest rates and monetary policy.
0: Kevin, I think we're going to forgive you for your taking stock pun. Um, Hugo, um, Kevin told us it's been a very good year for markets. And, um, you know, as, as as he just said, you know, extraordinary, really, given the backdrop of, of the pandemic. Um, so how did the portfolios perform and, and what were the main drivers? So, as, as
2: usual, these numbers are for the balance portfolios and their new court fund equivalents. So, it was another year of double digit returns and, re, uh, and returns ahead of that inflation plus 3% per annum target. Uh, and for sterling portfolios, they were up 10%. For dollar and euro portfolios, these numbers were around 11 uh, and 13.5%, respectively. So, this is really driven by three factors. So, firstly, strong absolute performance from the return assets, the equities, uh, a flat contribution from the diversifying assets and some positive uh, currency impact for the Euro portfolios as the Euro was was weak over the course of last year. Turning to the drivers of performance, and if we take the return assets first, so we had an 11% contribution to portfolios uh, and they performed, they they were up 16.6% uh, against the broader global equity index the MSCI which is up 20.9 so we had broad gains across the names with winners and losers being a mirror image really of 2020 so the winners included financials such as Lloyds up 35% Wells finally. Fargo <laughs> finally finally Wells Fargo uh, up, up even more up 61% so we're glad that we've held on uh, to those two positions uh, Amex up 37% um, cyclicals, including UK names, finally again, uh, did a lot better. So, Ash did up 74%. Phoenix, uh, which is a UK fund, up 21%. And our more recent additions, uh, Eurofins, up 59%. And Constellation Software, up 42%. The losers were Vanda, the Chinese fund, which is down 45%. Uh, Bears, uh, the the high-growth US tech stocks, down 12% cable one down 21%. All of these were strong performers in 2020. So those three were up 50, 74 and 45% respectively. The last quarter of the year was disappointing. So the relative underperformance of the equities over the year all came in the last quarter when our return assets were flat and the MSCI Global Equity Index was up 7%. Our holdings in what you could call the reopening trade. So banks, travel stocks struggled to keep up with the market as Omicron struck and bond yields declined. So for example, Ryanair was down 7%, Lloyd's was only up 2%. Our cable companies declined in value, having had a strong run over the first three quarters. So Charter was up 22% to the end of the third quarter and then down 10% in the fourth quarter. And the decline in Chinese equity markets impacted both the Vander Fund, down 18%, and Ward Ferry, down 13%. Notably, it was just a handful of the largest US tech names that drove the index return in the last quarter. Apple up 26%, Microsoft up 20%, Tesla up 36%. These big six stocks now account for 14% of the value of entire global stock markets.
0: Which is just extraordinary.
2: Yes, and Apple is now bigger than the entire UK market, for example, yeah. and generated a quarter, a quarter of the whole market's performance last year. And there's very little exposure to these stocks in portfolios. The situation for smaller tech companies was very different. So, for example, the bear's portfolio of smaller high-growth tech Uh, related names fell 11% but all of this can change very quickly indeed particularly as the Covid news now seems to be improving so if we just take a peek into what's happening this year we can already see a big rotation back in the other direction towards the reopening trade and bond yields rising so for example as of yesterday Wells Fargo is up 17% so far this year whilst Microsoft is down 9%. And then if we shift to the diversifying assets, we had a flat contribution for the year, which is unusual given that equity markets were up strongly. Whilst portfolio protection, i.e. the put options, the Accura and the One River gave a negative contribution at a portfolio level of 0.8%. This was offset by gains from inflation protection, which gave about a half a percent contribution and the trend followers, which also gave a similar amount. And whilst nominal bonds declined in value last year, inflation-linked bonds posted strong gains. So our holding of inflation-linked bonds gained 6%. And this was complemented by gains from our holdings of the US and European breakevens, which are also up about 6%. So the Inflation Focus Fund, which contains both of these things, was up 5% for the year. Trend followers benefited from strong moves in a number of assets, but particularly in in commodities. So the Abbey Focus Fund, for example, returned 15.5%. And finally, just on on FX, on currency, uh, sterling ended up flat against the dollar and strengthened against the euro. And here, the decision to hedge euro positions for sterling and dollar portfolios proved beneficial.
0: So um, a good year overall, even if we missed out on the end of year rally. But as you pointed out, these things can change pretty quickly. Um, looking longer term, uh, what returns have we seen over the last three years? And, and what are the main drivers been there?
2: Yes, yeah, so over the last three years, we've seen notable gains across most asset classes and our portfolios have benefited from this tailwind. So over that period, global equity markets are up 74%, 20% annualised. And the S&P has had one of its best three-year rolling periods going back to the 1950s, but this hasn't been a broad base. But as I said before, it's been driven by the U.S. large-cap tech, such as the fangs, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Google, etc., dominating returns, and value stocks really struggling. And this period also includes a decline yeah. of 30% in the first quarter of uh, of uh, 2020. Yeah. Bond markets um, over the three year period up 11% as bond yields declined primarily due to the Covid impact again in the first quarter of 2020. Uh, Currency markets have been uh, subdued uh, and volatility, which uh, is is very important for the pricing of options, has risen from very low levels uh, that we saw uh, before the the pandemic. So in that context, our return assets have returned uh, just under 76% and are marginally ahead of global equity markets. The diversifying assets have also contributed to returns at 1.4 percent, firstly from gains made as equity markets declined in that first quarter of 2020, and then more latterly from rising inflation and strong trends in commodity markets. Currencies have been pretty quiet with the the pound strengthening by 6 percent against the, the dollar, Against this backdrop, sterling balance portfolios have returned forty one point two percent, which is just over twelve percent annualised. Whilst UK CPI plus three percent has risen by around seventeen percent, which is just over five percent annualised.
0: So this is where I do my managing expectations. I think Hugo, because you know obviously we're very happy with those numbers and hopefully our clients are happy with them. But you know we do have to be realistic that that is a very strong return over a three year period and and just, and Kevin's nodding at me, Um, just over 12% a year, you know, is is unlikely to be, uh, unlikely to be repeated. Kevin, time for your crystal ball, I think. All of this sort of really leads us back as it has all year to thinking about the state of sort of global economies, but also what that means for inflation, as you alluded to earlier, is something we need to perhaps talk about a bit more. So what's the data telling you there?
1: Well, it is a pretty interesting juncture. So economically last year really did finish pretty strongly, led by the States where growth really picked up quite markedly. And despite the outbreak of the Omicron variant, uh, as we were saying earlier, uh, governments so far, in the West at least, have been resisting lockdowns. And the contagion hasn't yet translated, thankfully, into a similar surge in fatalities. And so far, at least into the early part of the new year, business surveys remain pretty upbeat. So the year looks to us to be likely to uh, continue very much as 2021 uh, finished, which was, not with a problem of uh, there not being enough growth, but the problem being almost that there is too much growth for comfort. It's a nice, nice problem to have, you might think. But what it means is that there there's a lot of demand out there, and that was leading to all sorts of supply shortages, at least in 2021, including for a while on both sides of the Atlantic, a shortage of workers. And what that meant was that we saw a spike in inflation. So we did suggest a year ago that inflation would become uh, an issue. Uh, remember we. Sent a short uh, research note out titled uh, "Inflation Revision Notes" because
0: yes, lots of people don't remember what inflation feels exactly. like. <laughs> many,
1: many people hadn't seen it yeah. until until yeah. recently. Absolutely, um, have to be old enough. <laughs> and and so far, actually, the spike in inflation uh, has been bigger than we'd anticipated. Um, we've just learned that in December, U.S. inflation hit seven percent for the first time since 1982. Retail price inflation here in the UK has hit 7% for the first time since 1991. Germany and Spain also are at multi-decade highs in terms of their inflation rates. Now the size of the spikes, the reason I think that we were surprised by just how spiky inflation was, is that clearly there are some bottlenecks out there that are very much being shaped by the pandemic. So the Federal Reserve, for example, is right, was right, to say that some of the inflation, in quotes, is transitory. That's probably 2021's investment word of the year. Uh, And we haven't changed our assessment of the underlying scale of the inflation threat. It's not going to go away, in our opinion, but we do still see it as being manageable. And what I mean by that is that we don't need we think from a top-down perspective at least that we don't need to drastically suggest drastically restructuring portfolios just because of this inflation. That does assume of course, going back to your point Helen, that does assume of course that central banks do the right thing and tighten policy accordingly to make sure that inflation doesn't get completely out of control. The Bank of England smelt the coffee in the fourth quarter and eventually got round to raising interest rates in December. The Fed began to, but so far has confined its attention to tapering its bond purchases, not raising interest rates, although that may not be far out of the The ECB perhaps of the big three Western banks is the one that has yet to wake up, but we think it probably will. And writing interest rates for me is likely to be the economic theme of 2022. So more to
0: come on that. So, um, Hugo, if we look back over the last year, we didn't do as many trades as we did in the previous year. Um, can you remind us of the sort of major changes and, and any notable activity, particularly for the for the last quarter?
2: Yes, so um, 2020 was very hectic and we carried out numerous trades. We were presented with some fantastic opportunities as equity markets declined and then rallied. 2021 um, has been quieter. However, we haven't been sitting on, on our hands. If 2020 was the year where the focus was on the return assets, the um, equities, then 2021 has been more focused on the diversifiers. And we can think about portfolio activity in three buckets. So first bucket, inflation protection.
0: Yeah, I was going to, I mean, obviously how are we positioned for that, I think is a key question.
2: Absolutely. And, and that's been the top thing I think that we've been thinking about. The And the second area has been drawdown protection, so against a big equity market fall. And the third has just been making some some changes within the return assets. We created the Inflation Focus Fund at the beginning of the year to hold your existing exposure to US TIPS, uh, inflation-linked bonds, and also to gain exposure to other inflation-linked markets and assets. We also bought ETS linked to the break even inflation rate in the US and Europe. And later in the year, we invested with a manager that's buying inflation protection, long-dated options.
0: Hugo, do you want to just explain break-even for those that don't know what it is?
2: Yes. So this this is the amount of inflation that's baked in to the inflation-linked bond market pricing, and the way these these ETFs work is by going long an inflation-linked bond and short a nominal bond of the same and duration, the and the- just isolating that component. Yeah. On the portfolio protection side we added two new positions, one River and Sabah, and we bought a small position in the put option in June. At the end of the year, we topped up Okura, which is the tail risk fund which performed very strongly during the market panic in 2020. We added to the trend follower, Abbey Capital, and made a change with the other trend follower, CFM. We like these funds as potential inflation hedges as well, which I talked about in the last podcast. Essentially, if we see things which generate inflation, like big increases in commodity prices, then then the trend followers are well-placed to uh, capture that. 2021 has been more muted on the return asset side, the equities uh, of the portfolio. We really like what we own for you, and so the main activity was exiting our lower conviction holdings, FOX, and the IVI European Equity Fund, and adding to the newer positions where Conviction has been growing, so Eurofins and Constellation Software. We also added to the Vander Fund, which is the Chinese equity fund managed by Cedarberg. We did that in August and September after the sharp falls in Chinese equity markets. And we pretty much added what we had taken out in 2020, but at a 25% lower price. And we think that their stock picks now offer compelling value.
0: How much of those transactions sort of changed the portfolios?
2: So, we ended the year with a similar shaped portfolio uh, to, to, to what we had at the beginning of the year, with broadly two thirds in return assets and one third in the diversifying mm-hmm. assets. Yep. And the composition of the return assets hasn't changed a lot. Uh, and as I said, we like what we own there. There have been more significant changes on the diversifying asset side as we really focus more on finding ways to protect against the against the yeah. risk of the high inflation really
0: and what level of equity market protection do we have in the portfolios i mean i know you've you've said because volatility is up you obviously that that protection from a put perspective becomes more expensive
2: yes i mean that's that's absolutely right it's uh, been a major challenge for us so finding protection against a significant equity market decline remains a challenge um, as volatility remains high versus where we were before a Covid and, you know, and, and volatility is the main pricing component for the options that we want to, to, uh, to buy. So we have less exposure to put options. They are more expensive today than they were a couple of years ago. So today a uh, 10% out of the money, you know, 12-month put on the S&P 500 index costs around 5% against three to four um, percent which it was before the, the pandemic. And the current puts are, give us a contribution of actually less than one percent at a, at a portfolio level if we do see a big market fall. And what this really means is that uh, you know, in the event of a 30 percent equity market fall, we estimate that a sterling balance portfolio would decline around 20 percent. Whereas that, that number would have been more like 15% in January 2020, so just before COVID.
0: And worth saying that that would depend on so many factors. I mean, that's a stress test scenario, right? But yeah.
2: It's a stress test, but um, I mean, the point is that we have yeah. less protection in portfolios yeah. now because it's a lot more expensive. Yeah. We have been trying to find alternatives to buying expensive puts for some time now. And, and we think we have some... Some good new ones in the One River and Sabre funds, and this is good protection without high levels of, of ongoing bleed. I think I've called this the Holy Grail of portfolio management on yeah. the previous podcast, and well, I mean, the quest uh, continues.
0: Yeah, Kevin, when we think about what's happened, and and as we've said a couple of times, it's been a surprisingly good period for markets. I guess the obvious question is, can it last?
1: That's a, a great question, and Helen, as you as you said earlier, I think we mustn't. Take double-digit returns yeah. for granted, of course. Yeah. Um, Headroom—it you know, seems logical to think that headroom must have reduced, been reduced by this fantastic period that we've we've enjoyed, um, and we think it has been reduced. But we still think there is some headroom out there. Most obvious issue, I think, that markets are going to have to contend with in early 2022, at least, is the prospect of steadily rising interest rates. We're going to continue to digest that, and they're certainly, for, from our point of view, they're the right thing to do because they help to preserve monetary credibility and they hopefully will avoid a more dramatic and disruptive tightening further down the road if inflation were to get out of control. But they could still unsettle portfolios from time to time. The reason for thinking that equity markets can live with that Though, is that if economies remain strong, and that's why interest rates are going up, and so too will corporate profits, and that's going to continue to offer some support to stocks. I think one of the best kept secrets in the investment world last year was the surge in US corporate earnings, which was pretty sensational. And it's possible that expectations for corporate profits in 2022 may not yet be high enough. More generally, um, if we're, we're talking about the sustainability of markets, one of the things that we have to talk about increasingly is the prospects for sustainability in the environment. And I would like to think that in 2021, particularly in the fourth quarter, we saw something of an inflection point in the way that collectively we address the global climate debate. Now, the Glasgow Climate Pact that was delivered by COP26, it's it's been seen by many people as disappointing in its specifics. For me, though, the more urgent tone of the discussions, the agreement talk more often in future, and some unexpected cooperation, for example, between China and the United States, offers grounds, all those things for me offer grounds for a more constructive view. And I think investors in particular should bear in mind that the environmental outlook can be much more nuanced than the headlines suggest. It may not be quite the, the, the threat, the urgent threat perhaps that the, the, the headlines I- imply. And in particular, a combination not just of mitigation, but also adaptation is probably going to see, in my view, humanity through this particular crisis. And markets themselves, of course, are part of the solution, not the problem. Are the risks? Well, I can see a couple of geopolitical flashpoints out there at uh, at the turn of the year. Uh, The West is a little bit demoralized, literally perhaps, and leaderless at the moment. And it's been withdrawing from the global stage. There isn't a global policeman anymore. Nobody expects there to be a global policeman as it were. And that's leaving Taiwan and Ukraine very vulnerable. Now, China in particular will never, ever give up its claims on Taiwan. And it's naive of anybody in the West to think that it will. But, a dramatic denouement there or in Ukraine is not inevitable because both China and Russia need to continue to engage with the global economy if they're going to prosper. And the free world does have some bargaining power there if it can only use it.
0: Hugo, you said earlier, you know, we've had three good years on the trot. Portfolios are still pretty fully invested. You know, given the risks that Kevin's outlined, inflation, potentially geopolitical, you know, what? why is that?
2: Well, what what we've seen in the first few days this year is a reminder that when markets become polarised, with investors heavily focused in some areas, then it doesn't take much to trigger rotations. So if in aggregate valuations appear quite full, then this masks plenty of attractively valued stocks, uh, particularly in certain geographies, uh, such as the UK uh, and much of uh, Asia. And those companies that are most correlated to daily treasury yield moves, such as the mega cap. Tech stocks are trading on a 50% forward PE premium to the market, and the sort of the other side, the anti-correlated companies are trading on a 50% discount. So, for example, capital-heavy industries, so materials or transport, are unloved and we think underinvested. So there are definitely areas to go fishing, and this is where the investments, such as the Lansdowne and Phoenix funds, could could really shine. Coming back to the diversifiers, we have some interesting positions there, some of which could be the beneficiaries of a change in long-standing trends, particularly in commodity, fixed income and currency markets. So, net-net, we are happy with where the portfolios are are currently, and if we weren't, then we would do something about it. I would be surprised if we had another three years of double-digit returns in a row. I mean, we would be betting against our history. However, the companies um, owned in the, in the portfolios are performing very strongly. I mean, Kevin's just mentioned this. They're performing very strongly at an operating level. Earnings are, are very, very strong. And our bottom-up appraisal of realistic forward returns is still favorable. And, and certainly, we feel that the current portfolios have a good chance of continuing to meet their real return objectives. And we continue to favor stocks over nominal assets, such as conventional bonds and uh, cash.
0: So thank you Hugo and Kevin for that, um, and thank you all for listening. Um, we always try and touch on topics that we think you'll be interested in, um, and the sort of questions you might ask, uh, and we do get questions uh, from you from time to time. Uh, if you do have anything particular that you would like, uh, you'd like us to cover then please ask your client advisors and they'll, they'll obviously pass that on and we'd be very happy to discuss it. Please remember that our podcasts are available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This is my bit where I sound like a product placement. Um, so if you uh, if you wish to receive them as soon as they're released or listen to uh, some of our other podcasts, then please subscribe on our channel uh, on either of those platforms. And it just remains for me to say I hope you have a very happy and healthy uh, 2022. Please note, this audio content is produced by Rothschild & Co for information purposes only. The podcast is not provided as a solicitation, recommendation, or invitation to buy or sell any security, fund, or any other banking or investment product. Nothing in this podcast constitutes advice of any sort, and no responsibility is accepted in relation to the content accuracy or any reliance on the information provided. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not recover the amount of your original investment. Past performance should not be taken as a guide to future performance. This content should only be used or reproduced with the express written permission of Rothschild & Co.